Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Good evening. You are listening to Radio Islam, and I'm your host, Tariq El Amin. Radio Islam is a live call in radio program, and we air every day from 6 to 7 p.m. right here on WCEV 1450 a.m. And we reach the world by streaming live at www.wcev1450.com. If you are new to the Radio Islam family, we welcome you. Thanks for joining. Make sure that you keep up with us. Follow us on social media at Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where you will find us at Radio Islam USA on all or any format at Radio Islam USA. All right, Radio Islam family, uh, I've got to remind you that any episode you hear, you can find uh, that you like, uh, particularly resonates with you. You can always find all of our past episodes wherever you get your podcast, uh, if that is SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, or TuneIn. I've got to mention that we are new to the TuneIn app, where you can also listen to the live broadcast. Uh, and you're going to find us at Radio Islam USA, once again, at Radio Islam USA. Uh, if you have a comment or a question that you would like to interject or inject into the conversation, uh, you can always reach us at 312-750-1178. That's 312-750-1178. All right, Radio Islam family, once again, I'm going to give you the greetings of peace. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Hope that you all have had a, uh, a great day. If you find yourself listening to us right now on your way home, Hope that it's a stress-free drive for you or ride. I myself am a metro-goer, so I'm on the train every day, and it is a, it is a big headache removed from my day. Uh, the worst thing or the biggest obstacles I might have uh, on a train are usually, uh, they usually come from other passengers. Uh, but fortunately, I find humor in most of these things most of the time. Uh, there was a gentleman who was sleeping the, the sleep of angels, as my uh, grandmother would say, uh, and he was letting everybody know about it. Uh, it, was, it, was an, it was a really aggressive type of a snore. Uh, the snore was, it wasn't just loud. It was, um, it was like his life was on the line. It was a snore which kind of made you feel like this man might need a CPAP or not might need one, but, like, there should be one on the train with us, like, need to have a CPAP because the, the brother's snore was, was so hard. Um, it was, you know, it, it got to the point where everybody was turning their heads, you know, to look back at this guy. And uh, and I ended up in conversation with, with the guy sitting across from me, uh, and we both, you know, we, we shared a laugh, I guess, at, at this brother's expense. Uh, but uh, it wasn't mean-spirited or anything. But uh, I did turn around and just take a peek at the face where this deep growl was coming from. And the, the brother was in a full-blown drool. Uh, so he was, he, was, he was really gone. So whatever day he had, he earned that sleep. So, um, yeah, so good for him, good for him. So that's, that's about the worst, that's about the worst uh, thing that will come up from the from the metro ride uh it's, it's things like that somebody snoring or maybe somebody talking too loud on their phone uh, and they're giving life advice or asking life advice from whoever's on the other end but you wind up in the conversation with them so uh but other than that my travel is generally pretty pretty easy so i'm hoping that yours is easy and that the worst thing you might have to deal with is somebody uh sleeping a little too hard so that being said, uh, welcome to another edition of Radio Islam. Uh, and as I'm often, uh, as I often find myself saying, like, where do you start when we look at, at the news? Uh, and I'll tell you, first of all, we've got a, a great uh, guest coming in uh, who's going to be in, um, well, shortly within the next, we'll, we'll get into that within the, the top half of the, um, top of the second half. And we've got Dr. Lamise uh, 
<clears throat> Shawahim coming in. And uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Muslim mental health and, and social justice and some of the things that impact mental health uh, as a whole. Uh, and some of those things are that can be ethnicity, that can be uh, economics, uh, gender. Uh, there, there are a lot of contributing factors to being uh, sound mentally. Uh, and so, so we're going to have a really good conversation about that. But I do want to double back and bring up one thing that I, I found worth talking about. Uh, a little more in depth since we have this, this this opportunity, and that is the the registry. So what's coming up when I'm talking about the registry? I'm I'm specifically talking about uh, Illinois Muslim Action Day. Now this is something that's been going on since 2009, and I felt like I said that really fast. So I'm going to say it again: Illinois Muslim Action Day. This has been going on since 2009. Started by the Council of Islamic Organizations of Greater Chicago, or CIOGC. And each year, they've taken a delegation of youth and and, and adults uh, that have gone down to our state capital, to Springfield, and they've met with legislators. Um, and each year, we've come down with a particular uh, set of, of concerns that we want to address, that we want to see what our legislators uh, not just see, but we want to make we want to inform them of our stance on particular uh, issues. So this year, when we go down, we are looking to talk about uh, we're, we're looking to address gun violence, and we're also looking to to address and say no and to reject emphatically a registry. So the the registry, uh, the the Senate bill, I think it's forty three eighty eight. Uh, what we're talking about in particular, uh, to give you an idea of what this uh, Senate bill, uh, what it encapsulates. It, it creates the Anti-Registry Program Act, and it provides that no agent or agency shall use any monies, facilities, property, equipment, or personnel of the agency to participate in or provide support in any manner for the creation, publication, or maintenance of a registry program. It provides that no agent or agency shall provide or disclose to any government authority personal demographic information regarding any individual that is requested for the purpose of one creating a registry program or two requiring registration of persons in a registry program provides that no agent or agency shall make available personal demographic information from any agency database including any database maintained by a private vendor under contract with the agency provides provisions regarding the construction and interpretation of the act and defines terms. So uh, this was just a synopsis of the act, of Senate Bill 4388. And uh, it's important for a number of reasons. As And I, and I say this, number one, uh, Radio Slime family, you know, I think you know my position by this point. We've, we've talked enough where you understand that wearing multiple hats and uh, embodying multiple perspectives or identities, uh, there is a an intersectionality uh, that is present in each and every one of us, and we respond to we respond to issues sometimes with with we respond to issues maybe from a particular lens or a particular aspect of ourselves. So, as a Muslim, I am. Uh, I, I am concerned. I am deeply concerned by Islamophobia. Uh, as an African American, as a black man, I am deeply concerned and impacted uh, by by racism, by prejudice, by systemic and institutional uh, biases. Um, as a male, right, I am aware of, of 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 that aspect of my identity and any detriment or any privilege that might be associated uh, with that. Um, as a high wage earner, as a, as a trade, you know, as a tradesman, right? So, I mean, I don't have to go down the whole list, but our experiences they make up who we are, uh, and they and they have an impact, an undeniable impact on how we process, on how we process information, how we respond to, uh, how we respond to, to to our social our social climate. So, one of the things that I see when I when I look at this. Uh, registry, um, I see 
as I respond, you know, as a Muslim, right, first and foremost, my responses are always going to be gauged not in uh, ethnicity. Uh, uh, they're not going to be, be gauged or rooted in um, uh, gender. They're going to be rooted in injustice, right, in the concept, in, this, in, in uh, the idea or ideal of justice. So I, I quote this often in, in conversation. I quote this often uh, in, in khutbahs and lectures, uh, panel discussions or whatever. But one of the most important things uh, to me, one of the most important guidances uh, for me as a Muslim, as a believer, is this adherence to justice. And that is going to be, you know, uh, in uh, the fourth surah, I at 135. It says, "Oh, you who believe, stand firmly for justice, even as witnesses uh, stand firmly for justice as witnesses to God, even as against yourselves." Right, and and it goes on further to to delineate uh, and to point out uh, these these different, uh, you know, whether you're talking to your parents, you're talking about uh, rich or poor, uh, whoever it is, justice is first and foremost. So when when I look at a bill like this, or not a bill, when I look at what it is trying to prevent. It is trying to prevent uh, any uh, I- incursions upon um, people's right to, to, to liberty, their access to liberty, right? It, it produces a, an environment where injustice uh, becomes the norm. So we, we have to be very careful about how we, how we respond uh, and, and not responding. So I urge everybody uh, that is listening, I urge you to, if you can't, Make it down for Illinois Muslim, Muslim Action Day this year. Uh, I urge you, at the very least, to log on to the site, CIOGC.org, uh, and to get information and find out how you can support. Uh, stay plugged in. Uh, contact your, uh, your legislators, your, your representatives on the state level, and make sure that it's understood that we are absolutely 100% against this, regardless of what our ethnicity is. Uh, our, our race or any other defining gender, whatever it is we want to look at, we're against it because it is against justice. So uh, I am on the board today, so I'm also uh, engineering tonight, uh, which is always a, a great time. That being said, yeah, we'll, we'll take a short break and we'll come back in a minute. We'll, 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 get, we'll get into the really good stuff tonight. So you listen to Radio Slime. We'll be right back. I became his driver. Soon enough, it was up to me to be his housekeeper and financial manager, too. When he moved in, I became his cook and even his nurse. But no matter what roles I play, I know I'm still his daughter. We understand the roles you play. So to help, we created aarp.org caregiving, where you can connect with experts and other caregivers. Visit aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Would your business survive a disaster? Nearly two-thirds of businesses aren't prepared for an emergency, and 40% of businesses that experience a disaster never recover. Make an emergency plan now before it's too late. For a free online tool that helps you develop an emergency plan to keep your business up and running should disaster strike, visit ready.gov forward slash business. Brought to you by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, the American Red Cross, and the Ad Council. Hey, Mom, why is the sky blue? Why don't animals talk? Why do dogs have wet noses? Why is an 11 pronounced 21? Kids ask a lot of questions. Why do I have a belly button? But you don't have to know every answer. Why is the ocean salty? Because you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Why are there 50 states? There are thousands of children in foster care who don't need every question answered. Why is pizza round? They just need you. For more information on how you can adopt, go to AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. Radio Islam, the nation's first daily live call-in talk radio show, produced by Muslims for the mainstream market. Radio Islam, on the air since 2004 because of your generosity. Radio Islam salutes its most valuable asset, you, our listener. From our producers to our interns, we appreciate your support. 
Thank you. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. I'm going to have to cut that volume down. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen. We are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM and live streaming at www.wcev1450.com. Now, if you are new to Radio Islam, we welcome you. And once again, we tell you to keep up with us by liking and following us on social media. Uh, we will be at Radio Islam USA, wherever you look, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We're at Radio Islam. So we are very pleased. We're very thankful to have in the studio with us tonight, Dr. Lamise Shawahim. She is a assistant. She is an assistant professor in the Division of Psychology and Counseling at Governor State University. Her research centers on exploring risk and resilience factors among um, by ethnic and religious minority individuals within the United States. Dr. Shawahin has published and presented on issues related to Muslim mental health, health disparities, cultural competence, cons- counseling considerations for diverse populations, anti-Muslim prejudice, and social justice. Her clinical interests include working with veterans and ethnic minorities, time-limited therapy, integrative care, Health psychology and rehabilitation psychology. Thank you for joining us. Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum salam. Thank you for having me. All right, it is, it is our pleasure. So, um, man, where, where, where do we start? Uh, <laughs> well, first, first, I, I do want to ask you just as far as your, um, as far as your clinical um, interests are concerned, uh, integrative care. What what exactly? What would that be? Yeah, um, integrative care, at least the way that I think of it, um, and I think the way that in the field of health psychology, we sort of think of it as um, a way for psychologists to be more integrated into medical care. Um, for you know, when you think about integrative care teams, it's a care team that doesn't just address medical issues, but it also addresses psychological issues, spiritual issues, social work sorts of issues. So the teams that I've worked on in the hospitals that I've worked at um, have had all of those components where there's medical doctor, pharmacy, nursing, um, you know, everything from the traditional sort of health team to the um, uh, chaplains that would come in and also be a part of our team. Uh, Each person would, each member of the team would report from their perspective of their profession on what's going on with the patient. So from the biological level all the way to the uh, emotional, spiritual level. Okay. Um, now, your interest, uh, the, the research you, that you've done, it has it, it, it goes into a, maybe some different areas than that people would normally look at. Uh, you, you look at the uh, ethnic uh, components or contributing factors uh, towards mental health, mm-hmm. um, and that's not something that prior to, to looking at, at at your research uh, the, the areas that I really would have would have thought about. Mm-hmm. Um, and what are the, some of the things? And that's just one of the areas uh, that you look at, <laughs> right? Yeah, so, yeah. So a very broad interests. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, no, there's there's a good deal of research, um, and and honestly, really a lot of the credit of where this research started has been within. African-American community in the U.S., um, the the study that really comes to mind to me um, is one that I just spent time talking to students about actually today, um, which unfortunately a lot of psychology students don't end up hearing about these stories because psychology, like a lot of other professions, glosses over the contributions of women and people of color in a really systematic way. So I, I'm saddened but not surprised. Uh, but doctors uh, Kenneth and Mamie Clark are responsible for the doll study, um, which a lot of people might be familiar with, where they had uh, small, ch- uh, you know, young African American children. They showed them these two dolls, and they would ask them um, which doll is pretty, which doll is ugly, which doll is uh, smart, which doll is dumb. Um, and the children, the African American children, were pointing always to the African American doll for the negative. Um, 
the negatively phrased words. And this study has been repeated since then with other ethnic minorities, and they found similar findings. Mm -hmm. Um, And so really their research um, is one of the foundational studies that actually influenced the Brown versus Board of Education verdict. Um, and they, uh, and this was just her master's thesis. This this doll study was just based off of Dr. Mamie Clark's uh, master's thesis. So they were prolific psychologists, and even their Wikipedia page is a joint page. They don't even have separate Wikipedia pages, mm-hmm. um, despite the huge contributions that each of them separately made. Um, so you know there is a, a history of studying how ethnicity. Um, and the role of, like, uh, discrimination influences mental health. But definitely that is not at the forefront of discussions of mental health because, like all of the other contributions that we know that minorities have made, um, they kind of get glossed over. Mm. Now, I know I'm probably I'm probably jumping ahead, but I, I've got to ask it now because I, I may lose it later, uh, and that is... Matter of fact, I think it was yesterday, the day before we were having a conversation, we were talking about uh, mental health or the lack of mental health and how that is normalized uh, in, in, in some communities. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll frame it this way. We were talking about how um, there's there's been a lot of attention, and rightly so, given to our servicemen and women mm-hmm. uh, and the effects of, of serving in high-stress areas and uh, and then coming back, integrating back into society. Mm-hmm. So post-traumatic stress uh, disorder, right? Mm-hmm. But in urban centers around the country uh, where people, black and brown, most most often are living in high violence uh, areas where there's a lot of violence taking place. Mm-hmm. But that there's not the same type of attention yeah. or response that's given in terms of uh, uh, mental health. Yeah, no, absolutely. I would have to fully, completely agree with you um, on that perspective that there is certainly a component of of trauma that gets overlooked when you're thinking about living in a um, a constant state of uh, distress. And I think there's parallels really with, um, you know, you think about like children in war-torn areas overseas, Um, you know, thinking about children in the Gaza Strip or in Syria or any of these places. um, It's really the same thing, and it's not really post-traumatic stress disorder because Mm -hmm. the trauma is not post. It's continual. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there are a lot of folks out there um, that are doing really good work as far as trauma-informed interventions for schools. Uh, so that they can better understand the effect of living in a traumatizing environment on um, youth. Uh, actually, one of my really good colleagues is coming to Governor State in the fall, and that's her primary focus of her work is uh, looking at sort of trauma uh, it, more closely and looking at the sort of areas of trauma that are overlooked. Um, I'm also working, or I have been working with. Uh, Dr. Monica Williams, and she really specialized in um, in race-based trauma um, and those uh, sorts of unique areas of trauma that are actually not even uh, considered to be a um, – let me back up and not use so much jargon, but the – in order to be diagnosed with PTSD, something traumatic has to happen to you. And currently under the definition of PTSD, racism is not considered a traumatic event. Mm. Um, and so people like Dr. Williams have been really arguing that, like, no, uh, you know, racism is traumatic and it should qualify. Um, I, I'm sure that there are folks out there uh, of conscience who still put the diagnosis when it seems appropriate, but just in the criteria um, – experiences of continual racism are not considered to be a defining characteristic of a trauma that would qualify someone for a PTSD diagnosis. Mm. Yeah. And um, and as my, my, my dear friend, Dr. Malik Rahim. Oh, he's amazing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> as, as he introduced the term to me, uh, racial battle fatigue. And I oh, don't yeah, yeah. know if, if I, I don't think, he, I don't know if he coined it or, or, or not, but uh, the introduction in and of itself was just extremely, uh, just it just captured mm-hmm. it, it captured what it means to deal with constant uh, microaggressions mm-hmm. and 
uh, things on a systemic things where you feel like you can't even see what's coming. Sure, at you. yeah, microaggressions, yeah. macro, all the aggressions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. Yeah, well, Dr. Rahim, I'm sure, like, is much better able to talk about that component of it. But yeah, definitely, racial battle fatigue should count as a trauma. <laughs> but but with 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 the work that that you have done, uh, what is the impact of being a religious minority? Uh, what impact does that have on on mental health? Um, it, I, it really depends on which religious minority, and it depends, too, on, like, intersecting characteristics that, you know, not all religious minorities are going to be experiencing the same levels of societal stigma. And right now, I mean, the religious minority that's in the news the most often really um, is Muslims. Mm-hmm. Um, but the stigma impacts different groups of Muslims differently, as you would imagine. Unfortunately, um, you know, one of the things that I am trying to do with my work is to try to change the narrative around who is Muslim um, and break this sort of um, pattern of acting like Muslims are one monolithic entity and that that monolithic entity is entirely Arab. Um, And, you know, even South Asians don't get recognized in the research, Um, at least in the psychological research. There's... uh, a huge overrepresentation of um, of Arab Arab American Muslims, um, and a much much lower percentage of uh, studies that are done on African American Muslims, for example, or uh, South Asian Muslims, or Albanian Eastern European Muslims. Islam in the U.S. is so diverse, um, but you know, in a lot of ways, we as researchers have allowed ourselves to kind of get sucked into that really simplistic analysis of who Muslims are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like the fact that, uh, t- to mention this word, the, the, the monolith, the mm-hmm. idea of just a, a single body of Muslim uh, behavior, outlook, culture, um, and, and experiences, which which simply goes against, it, it, it flies in the face of the idea of us, of this great diversity mm-hmm. um, that we have. It's like, how can you have so much diversity, but at the same time you, you think or you talk as if, there's just one experience. Yeah. So uh, what are some of the – oh, and Radio Slime family, because we family, I can tell you all this. <laughs> we have the, the young doctor in the uh, in studio with us. Uh, Yassine? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yassine. Uh, he, is, um, he, he, is, he is a scholar uh, in training and waiting, and he is in, and he's um, – I think he's doing some reading or watching. How, how old is he? He's two and a half. Okay, I don't know if you all you all picked it up, uh, Radio Slime family, but he just gave you all the slimes. So um, there is a there is a stigma that has always been associated with uh, sometimes just with the conversations around mental health mm-hmm. or I or acknowledging that there are forces affecting you that you may not really have the tools to, to address. So as a, um, I guess this will come as, as a clinician, right, mm-hmm. in, in dealing, dealing with these things. What are some of the, some of the things that, that you find or steps that you have to take in, uh, in helping people get over, work their way back into mental wellness? Yeah. Um, you know, and I, and I think kind of just tying it back into what we were just talking about too, I mean, I think that people who are, Muslim and experiencing mental health issues are kind of getting attacked from two ends that unfortunately in a lot of um, in a lot of spaces uh, in a lot of Muslim spaces really like regardless of ethnic background and not just Muslim spaces and in all spaces there is stigma against uh, folks with mental illness and and we see this you know when we talk about uh, gun violence, for example, um, you know, oftentimes the mental health of the um, per- the per- perpetrator is called into question, and so um, folks who have mental health issues are perceived as violent in in many communities. And then, um, you know, I think for someone who's Muslim and struggling with a mental health issue, it's this sort of double jeopardy. And then when you throw in, uh, you know, ethnic background and all of the other sorts of unique characteristics that can complicate someone's life, it becomes triple, quadruple jeopardy. Um, And so, you know, I think one of the things that I try to do in therapy is to really um, help people feel understood. So really spending time um, and taking intentional steps to 
align myself with a person and really help them feel that I'm on their level and that I understand them and I understand where they're coming from. And then once people feel understood, I think they can it helps them sort of shed a lot of the baggage that they um, that they have around their various experiences, and then they can really just genuinely express what's going on with them. Mm-hmm. And that's when I think the real work starts, that once someone's walls are broken down, then they can really engage with me as a, as a therapist and, and talk through some of the things that are going on in their lives. So that is, that is a, I guess it, it depends on the severity or it depends mm-hmm. on, on, on what is needed, but it is a, that, but that is a commitment that a person has to make. Yeah, yeah. We we have like a joke, like uh, how many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? Um, so how many? And the answer is uh, just one, but the light bulb needs to want to change. Uh. <laughs> so, it's corny, right? But um, but it's true that like, you know, you can't, you know, oftentimes I'll get, you know, people in the community that come to me and they're like, oh, my son is this and that. And can you talk to him? Can you help him or my daughter or, what, you know, whatever it ends up being. And you know, I'm I'm always happy to talk to people, um, and you know, not do therapy with them per se, but be able to help refer them somewhere that can, um, you know, because we try to not have dual relationships with patients and and whatnot. But um, I always the first thing I say is like, do they want help? Do they want to change? Because if the person isn't ready to change yet and isn't even thinking about changing, mm-hmm. um, really, no one can force them to. Okay. All right. I want to move over a little bit to tie this into uh, um, social justice, mm-hmm. right? And in in your in your words, uh, from your perspective, how how does mental health and social justice how do these two things intersect? Yeah, I mean, I I think that they intersect in a lot of ways, and I mean, for me too, just as a as a psychologist. I was brought to psychology through social justice. I initially thought that I wanted, you know, when I was younger, I was like, well, what do I want to be? Well, I knew that I wanted to engage in some kind of social justice work. And I saw a lot of my peers were, um, you know, becoming activists and just throwing in all their resources into organizing, community organizing and things like that. And, um, you know, I felt that I could make a difference as a psychologist, um, that that I saw that there was a lot of emotional hurt under so many of the problems in society. And so when I was sort of deciding what I wanted to do, that was one of the things that I was leaning towards was I was like, well, I want to be some kind of helper. And I chose psychology because I thought that psychology is really um, a tool that can be used to further social justice, to help empower people, um, to you know, make positive changes in people's lives, especially people who are experiencing marginalization in so many ways. And then also as psychologists to be advocates, like going back to Kenneth and Mamie Clark, um, the work that they did really had a a huge impact on society. Um, And so I really see it as a tool that can definitely be used for social justice. Um, Is it always used for social justice? No. Um, there are certainly in the course of history and not just history, just a few years ago, it came out that um, the there was a sort of cover up of the engagement of some psychologists in uh, Guantanamo Bay uh, by the American Psychological Association. And since then, they have made efforts to kind of rectify what was done. But that was only a few years ago that it came out that that happened. So just like any tool, I think it can be used for good or for bad. And I try to, you know, use it for good as much as I can. Okay. All right. Um, Radio Sound family, we're going to take a very, very short break. Okay. And then when we come back, we're going to finish up our conversation with Dr. Shawahin. Uh, if you'd like to give us a call, feel free to do so at 312 750 1178. We'll be back in just a minute. I shoved the envelope under my sweater and sneaked through the kitchen. Mom was on the phone in the front room. I didn't want to have to explain anything. I just wanted to be by myself. Clutching the envelope tightly, I stepped onto the ladder at the bottom of the treehouse. Something caught my eye above me, and I looked up. (gasps) Light! It looked as if there were a firework display going on inside the treehouse. Crackling and snapping and whizzing sounds spun around above my head. 
Lights shot out and sparks dancing to the popping of noise. My first thought was to scream fire and run to the house to get mom. My legs trembled as I inched upward, creeping up the rungs as quietly as I could. My heart banged so hard that it felt as if someone were hitting my chest. A couple more steps, and then I leaned forward, craning my neck to look inside. And then I looked up and saw... To find out what happens next, read Philippa Fisher's Fairy Godsister by Liz Kessler. Explore new worlds and check out more cool books at your local library. And visit read.gov. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Confessions of a Potentially Perfect Parent. Brought to you by AdoptUsKids.org. I don't know how to talk like a parent. Don't make me come back there. You see what I mean? It's pretty awful. Try it again. Don't make me come back there. Now that's pretty good. That one kind of sounded like my dad. Weird. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. There are thousands of teens in foster care who would love to put up with you. Call 1-888-200-4005 or visit AdoptUsKids.org for more information. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Adopt Us Kids in the Ad Council. And now we have an 8-year-old on the line. Welcome to our world today. What's your question? Our continents make up 29% of the Earth's surface, meaning that 71% is comprised of water. Man automatically adapts to environmental conditions. So why do I need to take swimming lessons? Are you ready for kids who eat healthy? Good nutrition can lead to great things. To find out how a healthy lifestyle can help your child succeed, go to MyPyramid.gov. Brought to you by the Ad Council and USDA. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el We are joined in studio by Dr. Lamise Shawahin. Uh, she is an associate professor at Governor State University in the Division of Psychology and Counseling. And uh, we've been talking about mental health, social justice, and we actually even talked about dolls for a minute. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we got dolls in there as well. So, uh, Radio Sound family, we're just going to pick right, right back on up. Oh, and we're also joined by the young, uh, budding scholar, <laughs> Dr. Yassine. He's, he's watching. What is he watching? He's watching trolls. He's watching. You know, I always want. I, I don't want to just like jump off onto <laughs> yeah. another subject, but <laughs> sure. yeah. But but I always wanted to see that. Um, I'm going to see it at some point. Yeah. No, I it's, it's. I mean, yeah. my father, his father, and I ruin movies so yeah we we can't watch movies without ruining them so we find something dark in this movie like it's hard to watch kids movies the over over analysis yeah over analysis yeah i mean it is kind of messed up like there are these um uh or yeah these trolls that are being eaten by this other race of trolls i mean it's kind of morbid as a movie that's what it's about yeah yeah Oh, it's it's a okay. little morbid. Like I feel like you can't not think it's morbid when you watch it. Yeah, kind of but it's a kids movie. Mm. Okay. <laughs> yeah, when you put it that way, it is. I we hadn't con- quite gone that far with it, but I can't wait to go home and and talk to him about how maybe it's cannibalism. Yeah, that's rough. <laughs> that's rough. That's rough. Okay, so well, I guess that is related to mental health. Too. It is so, sure. Yeah, you, know, you could relate anything to that. You really can. Yeah. Yeah. So what are, um, are there any projects or anything that, that you're working on right now? That yeah, um, there's, so one of the courses that I teach at Governor State is a multicultural psychology course. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am really happy to teach that course because I'm able to use the textbook of um, really one of my favorite professors from undergraduate um, studies. at uh, And she, she wrote a really lovely book that was ahead of, it's time uh, almost 10 years ago mm-hmm. and it's still so relevant that when you pick it up now it looks like it was written three days ago What's it um, called? it's called uh, social justice multicultural counseling and practice okay yeah um, and she's actually has a, a the second volume of it is um, or the second uh, edition of it is coming out soon which is really good um, but yeah it was very very ahead of its time then and so I'm really happy to be using it now um, the book integrates uh, mindfulness practice into um, uh, helping practitioners explore various areas of cultural diversity. Um, so 
one of the big um, problems with training cultural competence in any health provider is that when you tell somebody that they're doing something that's potentially prejudiced or um, detrimental to whatever minority group, there is this defensiveness that comes out immediately. Mm -hmm. Um, And what mindfulness does is it trains you to notice things, uncomfortable feelings, um, things in your environment, uh, pretty much anything, notice it without reacting to it. And to really pause um, throughout your day and experience things fully without going on autopilot. And so I think it's a really beautiful idea to take that idea of mindfulness and integrate it with cultural humility um, and try to help people in that way sort of um, slow down that process and notice themselves feeling guilty or notice themselves feeling defensive and intervene at a point before it gets to Um, a level where they're not able to grasp the material anymore. Um, So one of the studies that I'm doing right now is trying to look at how mindfulness practice influences um, various factors like cultural humility and cultural empathy um, and a few other uh, sort of markers of what we would consider to be, you know, a provider who is able to work effectively with folks who are different from themselves. Mm. Now, you know, mindfulness, this is definitely a a Quranic um, precept. Um, And it's uh, the self-accusing spirit, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, The ability to look at yourself and and see how you, just just to look at your own own impact uh, on on the environment, on other people, and and be good with changing uh, where necessary. So I I think that's that's a really awesome... Uh, that's an awesome thing. So do you do particular exercises um, to, to, to work that out? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I do think that it I, – I think it works. Um, but I think that it hasn't quite yet been proven empirically that it works. Um, and, and, you know, that's part of social science research is, you know, taking these theories that we have and putting them out into practice and, you know, trying to see, you know, is it really working? Is it really doing what we need it to be doing? Um, and one of the things that um, one of the things that has been really cool with this project is that I've been able to collaborate with my colleagues. So um, Dr. Altus Guinness and Dr. Tim Pedigo at Governor State University are both um, practitioners as well as scholars, um, prof- uh, professors at Governor State, and um, you know they've really been supportive in this project. Dr. Pedigo has a a special focus in mindfulness practice. And so he's been doing um, a specific meditation with the uh, students. And we have, you know, we designed it as an experiment. So we have some of the students doing one thing, some of the students doing the other thing. And then it'll enable us to be, uh, you know, compare those two groups and see if there's, um, if the mindfulness practice had any lasting impact on um, on the students. Okay. Yep. Um, I got a text uh, from a listener. Yeah. And <laughs> I want you to define cultural humility. Sure, yeah. Um, so cultural humility, I think, is a, it's a sort of emerging term right now, if I'm not mistaken. Um, prior to uh, that term being introduced to me and, you know, me starting to hear it more out in the field, uh, we talked about cultural competence. And I think one of the challenges with talking about cultural competence is that we um, think like, okay, I'm done. We're competent. Because like when you think about competencies, there are things that you meet and you don't really exceed. That like, okay, um, I passed uh, pre-algebra. I met that competency. Now I can move to algebra. And then, you know, so on and so forth. But with multiculturalism, there is no competence. You can never be competent. You can never know everything there is to know about every culture, certainly, and you can't possibly know everything there is to know about how various cultures interact, um, what does it mean to be, you know, this ethnicity and this religion and this person, that there are individual factors. So there really is no competence. Humility, on the other hand, is is what it sounds like, that it's um, this idea that I don't know and that I want to know um, and that I will do the work to learn um, and not assume anything that, you know, the only thing I can assume is that I don't know. Um, and then going from that sort of p- 
place of humility and um, just being humble about what you do and do not know um, and what you can and cannot know, I think. Um, so we try to move, I, at least I try to move folks to a place of cultural humility rather than a place of cultural competence because I think thinking that you are competent culturally um, is dangerous because yeah. the second you think you know you got it down, it, you definitely don't have it down. Mm. Yeah, and once again, that pushes, well, there's the, the possibility of pushing uh, that type of, uh, that individual into, once again, pulling everybody into under one on one umbrella, mm-hmm. uh, you know, re- responding to everybody, thinking that that monolith, they create a monolith in their own mind in, in, in terms of uh, cultural competency, so to mm-hmm. speak, and don't really leave room for any outliers. Yeah. So, yeah. I yeah, no, I, I was watching a TED Talk uh, yesterday, actually, and it was a woman who was talking about how at 32 her husband became violently ill and they took him to the hospital and uh, they keep testing him and testing him for all these things. And then four weeks later, the doctors are coming at her and telling her, hey, um, you know, your husband needs to just open up to us. He needs to be honest about his HIV use or his unprotected sex with men. Because because he was an African-American, they assumed that he either has HIV or serocoidosis. And when they told her that, she was like, can you test my husband for something that white people get? And then they found out that he had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and he only had two weeks to live. And if they were culturally humble rather than thinking they're culturally competent, they that family would have had six weeks with their father. He was a father of three with another one on the way when he died. And um, when I hear that story, it really just reminds me of, you know, my responsibility as a professor when I'm training these students to really emphasize cultural humility rather than cultural competence because this idea of like oh I know you know African Americans these are the issues that they face Mm -hmm. Um, the second you think that you stop seeing a person in front of you and you see this monolith right you know and I think one of the most one of the the more difficult things that any of us face in this society that places a a premium on having answers um, Mm -hmm. is telling someone I don't know uh, and that, uh, that that's really difficult for, I think, for, for novices, number mm-hmm. one. I think the more, you, the more you know, the more you study, the more you realize, man, there's a whole lot that I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I think this, that, that idea of cultural humility, that, is a, that has a great potential to address uh, underlying, I think, fault. I don't want to just say it's just in America. But I think our society really is one that, you know, if you don't know, if you raise your hand and ask a question, then you've just turned yourself into the into the dummy. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And and I I mean, I think, too, on the flip side, I think when we go to providers, we want answers from them. Sure. And and I think it can be kind of, um, you know, like you think I I, I even just remember, too, like when I was um, when I had Yasin, like when I would get like a medical resident uh, to come in. Um, you know, I would always be like, well, do I really want a resident? Like, I, you know, like, you know, even though <laughs> I myself was a resident, you know, <laughs> yeah. at the time. But then, you know, when I really um, the residents were actually the kindest doctors that I interacted with. Really? And they yeah. And they knew their stuff better. And they were more humble than the ones that were practicing for decades. Mm. And so, you know, I had almost my own bias uh, with where I was like, even though I was a trainee, too, I was like, oh, I don't want a trainee. Like, I want answers. Like, you know, and and I think when the stakes are high, people do want answers. And um, so, I mean, I would encourage people, too, that like, you know, when you have a doctor, if they seem a little bit like, you know, well, I'm not sure, but I want to know, and they're kind of talking in an earnest sort of way about it, that's a good sign because it means that they're trying to figure you out and they're not just trying to, you know, you know, kind of act like you're going through a McDonald's driveway or something. Right. Yeah, right. drive through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know what? I'm going to give because our, our time always flies by really quickly, uh, but I want to give uh, the Radio Slime family some, some homework, something to walk away from this show with. Uh, and I want you to add to this, right? But what I want to ask first is for us to really integrate uh, this idea of mindfulness uh, into our uh, everyday lives as much as possible mm-hmm. to see how we fit into the problems we feel like we're looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's going to be something that I'm going to be really 
try to become much more uh, mindful. Even though I, I'll say I try to do it. I think we all do, but mm-hmm. I'm going to just try to keep that in the front of uh, forefront of my mind. Um, anything that you want to leave with the Radio Islam family? Yeah, I mean, if if mindfulness is a goal and if it's like um, something that folks want to work on, I think that. Um, you can do anything mindfully. You can mindfully walk. You can mindfully brush your teeth. You can mindfully dry your hair. Um, you know, any any moment that you are going through your day, just um, trying to really notice all of the sensations. Um, there are audios that can help you walk through practice with mindfulness. Um, and once you sort of have it down, you don't need the audios anymore. But there's a really great free app um, called Insight Timer. Uh, and that one has uh, tons and tons of different, um, uh, tons and tons of different audios for mindfulness. Okay. Well, it has been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. It's I, been a pleasure talking to you. Yes, I appreciate you being here, uh, Radio Sun family. Join us tomorrow for movie talk, Tariq and Bubba. We're going to be talking. I, w- I won't even tell you which movie it is, but we'll be talking um, about movies or television shows, whatever it is, but we're going to be having a good time. Uh, Join us tomorrow at 6 p.m., same station, same time. Uh, I am your, what am I? I don't know what I am. But first, we're going to thank our engineer over at WCV. I believe it is Leonard. Uh, So thank you very much, sir. Uh, I am the host, producer, and engineer for tonight's show, Tariq Alameen. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. And we remind you that the views expressed by the host and or guests are theirs and not to be taken as representative of Sound Vision, Inc. That being said, family, I'm going to leave you as I greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.